Genesis 50, 1 to 14 is our passage for today. So I'm going to set a challenge for us. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a bad challenge. It's a good challenge. It's going to be fun. For the next 25 days, I'm going to put out two chapters of Genesis a day to, to read, to, to do a full recap of uh, the book of Genesis. And then at the end of the 25 days, we're going to have a Q&A night uh, where we can ask questions, discuss maybe some areas that we didn't touch on in heaps of depth, but let's just wring Genesis as dry as we can. Of course, we could preach this again and, 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 and find new things, but yeah, 25 days. So of course, tomorrow will be Genesis 1 and 2, and you can work out the progression, but I'll, I'll try and remember to post each day. And then after that, a Q&A where we come together as the church and just sink our teeth back into the book of Genesis and try and learn a bit more and, and recall a bit more so that we can go from here and say, man, the book of Genesis, that really does set up the whole of scripture and help me understand uh, the story of God. Cool? Cool. Should be good. All right. Genesis 50, 1 to 14. I'm going to read the last verse of 49. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father so that the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how, long, how, how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him was passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ear of Pharaoh and say, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die, in my, die, and in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him he went up, he went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which, Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of the Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, to the east of Memre, which Abraham bought 
brought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burial place, burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before you, we come before your word, and as the prophets write, would we tremble before your word? Would this nation tremble before your word? Lord, as your people, we long to know you more and know more of your story, to know the role that we should play in your story. We know that death will come for us all, yet those who believe in Christ will be raised with Christ. We have a hope beyond the grave, and we see that in Jacob's life. We see that in the, the, the resurrection of Christ. So Lord, as we confront death, as we ponder it, as we ask for wisdom to count the number of days that we may have, would we live well, live for your story and not our own, for your kingdom and not our castle? May we be emptied and humbled of all pride and all lusts and all passions in order to exalt you and you alone. You are the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are your humble servants. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 2, 15 to 17 says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Man was given a land, a home, a purpose to work it and keep it, a household of yes with one no. Obedience to your creator is life and peace, but disobedience is death. And the seed of doubt planted by the serpent, you will not surely die, but you will be like God. So man made the decision that he would rather live a short time under his own rule than forever under God's rule. And Romans tells us, because of this one man, sin came into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This is what we see started in Genesis 3 through the sin of Adam and Eve. And the sin of Adam, therefore, implants in every descendant of Adam, which we see Moses write about in Genesis 5, 3 to 8. In the genealogy way back when we taught on this, it has the recurring phrase, and he died. Let me give you an example of these few verses, 3 to 8. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Seth, the, day, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And it goes on to say that Seth died, and Seth's son died, and after that, his son died. And at this fast-track way of telling a story all the way to Noah, that they all died. Death reigns from Adam to now. Death has been reigning from Adam till Christ, yet with Christ we have a hope beyond the grave. The repeated phrase, and he died, is not only repeated in this genealogy in Genesis 5, but it's also repeated in poetic language throughout the rest of the scriptures that life is short. Psalm 144 verse 4, man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Psalm 102 verse 3, for my days pass away like smoke. Psalm 39 verse 5, behold you have made my days a few hand breaths, my life is nothing before you. Short. Your life is short. Much has been before you and much will be after you. Your life is a handbreadth like smoke, a vapor before God. Psalm 90 then tells us to consider the days that we have. It says this, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or in Psalm 39, 4, O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Along with the Psalms crying out that your life is short, it's also crying out that you know how short it is. And it actually says in Psalm 90 that you gain a heart of wisdom when you number your days. When you consider how limited you are. Moses also wrote Psalm 90 as he wrote Genesis, uh, the, the book of Genesis, and he is calling us, <clears throat> sorry, I have been sick, so excuse the sniffling. Uh, he, he calls us to ask for a heart of wisdom. Teach me to number my days. Teach me to count. Teach me to live well. And, in, and when we come to consider death, we have to consider the life that we are living. So in this message, we're going to look at mourning. We're going to look at death. We're going to look at Christ's victory over death. But we're going to consider, what are we living for? How do we not waste the days that we have? How do we live like the faithfulness of Jacob in his time or the faithfulness of Joseph in their time? In the midst of suffering and trial, in the midst of unfaithfulness and all that goes with it. Let me quote Doug Wilson here, it says, one of the most important things we can learn from scripture is how we see ourselves accurately in the story which we find ourselves. What story is God telling? And how does it, and how does it concern us? We need to know what kind of story God is telling and we need to know our role in it. We need to know how to tell the difference between a friend and a foe. We need to know who the true hero is very helpful to think that the Bible is one story and the life that we are living is one story. 
connected to the generations before and connected to the generations after. And if we get the story wrong, we get our position in that story wrong and we live wrong. So let's consider life and death through the death of Jacob. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm him, his father. So the physicians embalmed uh, Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how long it, ta- it, it, it is required for embalming him. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. In our last section, we saw Jacob bless his sons, not just bless his son, but right at the start it said, I will tell you what is about to take place. Jacob is revealed to be a prophet. Many of the patriarchs before the time of the prophets were prophetic in the way they spoke about the future, and Jacob was accurate. If he was not accurate, he would have been stoned to death, although he was already dead in his time, so it didn't happen. He was accurate. Judah, the scepter would not pass from Judah. Christ would come from Judah. What he said about the tribes became true of his sons. At this point, he pulls his legs up into his bed and he breathes his last. His time in this life and in God's story has finished. His journey, his process is over, but it will continue on through his son's and his son's sons. God's story continues forever. But Jacob's is finished. At least in this life. So what happens when a patriarch dies? Or a brother or sister dies in the church? Well, I think it's right that we see things slow down for a while. Let's, look, let's consider not just the mourning of Joseph and his brothers here, but if we go back to Genesis 25, we remember how Abraham mourned for Sarah. We as a society aren't great at mourning. We suppress our feelings and emotions. We hide away and retreat into ourselves. But the scriptures, and in ancient times, show a grievous mourning, a grievous lamentation. So much so that all the people around witness it. The Canaanites, the Egyptians come. We see an initial mourning when the body is first, uh, when the, spirit, the soul has left the body and the body lays before us. A lot of us have probably never seen a dead body. A lot of us may have never experienced someone dead before us. That was common in the ancient time. And it's actually a helpful process in grieving the lost. It is good to see a lifeless body before us, to acknowledge that they, their soul has gone to heaven, God willing, if they are in Christ, and their body lays before us. It is helpful to have that moment of weeping before the father or the mother or the loved one that has passed, and to physically acknowledge that they are no longer present in their body. We see Joseph weep over him. He cries. This is a good thing. To suppress emotion is only to delay it later on in life. But Joseph, he grieves over the death of his father, that his father is no longer with them, that his story has ended, but God's story will continue. And he also grieves that there is death in the world at all. This is what Jesus does. When Mary and Martha come to, their, come to him and say, our brother is dead, 
And Jesus weeps. Why does he weep? He's the resurrection and the life. He is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He weeps because death is in the world at all. So when we come to mourning, when we think about the death that we're all going to experience, maybe some of us have experienced very little. Many of us may have experienced lots of death. But mourning is a good thing. Life slows down. Joseph has scaled back his role in work and his main priority for 40 days at at the beginning is mourning and then it goes on to 70 days to mourn for the dead. We would do well to learn how to mourn well, to grieve well in our time. The third thing we see is that the body is not meaningless. We have taken on, I think, in many aspects, a dualism, Gnostic uh, understanding, a Greek understanding of life, where we say the spirit is good and everything that is flesh is vile and, and horrible, and that is where the sin lies. So everything spiritual is a good thing and we should engage in spirituality, but the physical is, is diseased with sin. That is not true of scripture. That is not what God teaches. In fact, when God created the world, he said it was good. When he created man, he said it was very good. The physical is no less vile than the spiritual. We have completely fallen into sin. Our both soul and physical bodies have been cursed by sin. Therefore, we should not be like the, we should not have the attitude of, well, it's meaningless what happens to my body. There is a process. A funeral is a good thing. Burial is a biblical concept that we bury our body knowing that the resurrection may come again. Now, I'm not going to get into a bait over cremation versus burial, but the Bible does lean towards burial. You can study that if you would like in your own time. So having a funeral is important. I know in my younger days, I would have said, well, it doesn't matter when I die, do whatever you want. I think the scriptures don't say that. The scriptures say, celebrate a life, mourn death. Grieve for the loss of the person. Take time to process what has happened and exalt Christ in the meantime. So Joseph does this as the now head of the household because everyone else has foregone that blessing. Joseph has been established as the firstborn through Ephraim. He takes charge and he gathers the, Hebrew, uh, the, the Egyptians to make Joseph uh, his father a mummy, pretty much, is what we're seeing. He preserves the body. Now, this was a Jewish custom, and the reason the Jew, uh, sorry, this was an Egyptian custom, and the reason the Egyptians would do that is they believed that if the body was gone, then you cease to exist in the spiritual world. So the rich would preserve their bodies for a very, very long time so that they would continue to live on in the spiritual world. Of course, Joseph doesn't believe this. The reason Joseph wants to follow the Egyptian custom is for one reason and one reason only is to preserve Jacob's body so that it can make the journey back to Canaan, back to the promised land, back to where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah were buried. Genesis 23, verse 3 to 4, we see Abraham buy this land in Canaan. Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, 
I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burial place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I remember when we talked about this and when we preached on the mourning process of Abraham, one of the aspects that came to light is that he would bury Sarah and then he would leave. He did not go back and sit before her tombstone and ponder what she's doing in heaven. He buried her out of his sight and he moved on from grief. There is a time when we move on from grief. Of course, the pain still lingers with us and we carry the weight of the ones we've lost day after day. But there is a time where we must go back to work, a time where we must go back to building the kingdom, a time where we, who are still living in God's story, need to continue for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So Jacob is being preserved, or his body is being preserved, to make the long journey back to Canaan, to the promised land. In verse 4, we pick up where Joseph has had significant time to grieve. His hair has probably grown long. He looks a lot less like an Egyptian ruler now and a lot more like a Hebrew. And he doesn't go to Pharaoh himself, but he goes to Pharaoh's household and sends a message that says... If I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh and say, my father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out out for myself in the land of Canaan. That is where you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered him, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph doesn't go before Pharaoh, but sends a message to Pharaoh. And he's promised his father that he will take his body back to Canaan, a promise that he may not be able to keep. What we need to remember about Joseph, he he is a ruler in Egypt, but he is still a slave. Joseph, if he was to say to Pharaoh all these years, Pharaoh, I'm going to go and see my family in Canaan. Pharaoh would have said, remember your place, son. You are a slave. I made you a ruler and I can put you back into prison. Joseph is not a free man. He's never been a free man, not since he was sold by his brothers in the world. Although he has prosperity, although he has status, although he has wealth, it still does not mean that he is free. It's a great question for us to consider, just a sort of side question of this passage, is just because we have comfort, Just because we have wealth, just because we have status, does not mean that we are living as free people. In fact, we might be bound. Maybe we're slaves to our workplace because of the heights of our mortgage. Maybe we're slaves to our workplace because we have become so uh, accustomed to a level of comfort. So we've become slaves to comfort and pleasure that we can't give up. Just because we have these things does not mean that we are free. We may be bound by them. What we see in Joseph's story is that he is actually bound. He does not have the capacity to go and bury his father. He has to ask permission to leave, in which Pharaoh could say no. 1 Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.16, it says, Live as free people. Live as free people, not using your freedom as cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are called as Christians to not go back into slavery. We were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to death. Now we are free. We should use our freedom for God's kingdom. Joseph at this point is enslaved. 
He's enslaved to Pharaoh. But there's another little thing that we see here. It's not just Pharaoh that he's enslaved to, but death. We're all enslaved to death. Joseph goes to Pharaoh to ask for permission to bury his father. But Pharaoh is a a self-proclaimed God, human God, king. Many of the pharaohs believed that they were, or, or the pharaohs got exalted to the status of a deity. And what Joseph is coming to say is there is death in your land. Pharaoh, you are king. Pharaoh, you have preserved life through this long famine, through these seven years of famine. You have preserved not only the life of Egyptians, but the life of Canaan, Canaanites and the surrounding cities. But death still reigns. You're all enslaved to death. And Joseph's question of, can I go and bury my father, is pretty much a revealing to Pharaoh that there is something happening in your city, in your country, that you can't stop. And all Joseph, all Pharaoh can say is, go bury your father. I can't do anything about death. It's a sobering response. We are called to pause here and think, about kings of this earth that have elevated themselves to a divine status. Nearly every king throughout history, if you think about it, has thought they have more power than they do. You cannot do anything about death. Go bury your father. It's sobering. Pharaoh's power is limited. All he can say to Joseph is just go. I can't do anything about this. The revealing of Joseph's slavery reveals a greater slavery that death reigns even in the greatest country, the greatest city of the time. And death still reigns until Christ. There's a cry for a greater king, a greater Pharaoh, a greater king of kings, a greater lord of lords who has some control over the slavery to death that all humans are bound toward. And so it goes on as Joseph has permission now to go and bury his father in verse 7. And Pharaoh does something very strange by sending his household and his elders. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. Only their children, the flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, It was a very great company. The imagery in this passage continues deliberately to put forth that the Egyptians go with Israel. The wealth of Egypt is heading out with the man Israel. And we have to think deliberately about the name that is used. It is Israel. Israel is the man who is being buried and he's being buried not in Egypt, but in Canaan, in the promised land. This picture of the body of Israel heading off to the promised land with the wealth of Egypt is a foreshadow of of the Exodus. Israel will one day leave Egypt as a free nation with the wealth of Egypt on their children and on their animals. This great company goes in God's uh, God's, God's plan in order to bring about this picture of Israel being freed. The reference to Atad, 
That place is to show that they took the long journey, the same journey that Moses will one day take with the people of Israel. Israel will be free. They are a free nation. And Israel will not dwell forever in the land of Egypt, which is seen in the burial of the man Israel. In verse 10, it says, When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation to be made, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. It's not the only thing that we see as a foreshadow of the Exodus. But death is a witness to all's slavery. To the Canaanites, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, everyone is looking on in their mourning that death reigns. Here the people of Canaan are struck by the mourning. The Egyptians are mourning Israel, this man. The Gentile nations are mourning over this death of a Hebrew. And they're mourning as they point towards a greater death that the Gentiles will acknowledge Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross and had breathed his last breath, a Roman centurion looked upon him and said, truly, this was the son of God. When we look at the Canaanites, the Egyptians, all in awe and all thinking about death of Israel, it points towards one day when the, Canaan, the, when the Gentile nations will look towards Christ's death and wonder, surely, truly, this was the Son of Man. Isaiah 52.10 puts it, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The salvation of our God. The Canaanites and the Egyptians look upon the grave of Jacob, look upon the tomb of Jacob, and they see a foreshadow of the exodus from slavery of Egypt, but later they will look upon the crucified Christ and they'll see an exodus from the slavery of sin and death. In death, Jesus shows the ends of the earth, the salvation of God. They needed saving from death, and God's just wrath on his only son would accomplish this. Pharaoh was confronted with death and had to send his slave out free to bury his dead because he alone could do nothing about the dead. When Jesus had Martha come and confront him with her dead, he says in John eleven twenty four to 27, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Whoever believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. Jacob has died, yet he believed in Jesus. And Jesus says of Jacob in Luke 20, when, they, when he was questioned about the resurrection, in Luke 20, 37, 
But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the, about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live in him. Jacob believed in Jesus, and therefore, though he died, yet he lived, and our God is the God of the living. And Jesus says, Jacob is with God. Jacob believed in Christ, in his son that would come through Judah, in his son that was greater than Pharaoh, greater than Nebuchadnezzar, greater than the kings of Rome or the Caesars of Rome. He could do something about death. He could take possession of a land through death. He could take possession of people through death. And that is where we finish. In verse 12 to 14, Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of Machpelah to the east of Memre and Abraham that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burial ground. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. The first place that Israel owned in the promised land was a burial ground. The sons of Israel, the head of the, the sons of Israel, the head, the head of the promise, had dis, had had displayed that through death he would take possession. Through death he would take possession of the burial ground. This image that through their burial, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's burial in the promised land, their death meant that they would possess this whole land, and it points to Christ that good comes from death. Romans 8.28 tells us this great passage that's quoted so much. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Even death. Death works for good. Christ's death worked out for our good. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, I write to you of first importance, Christ died. That's of first importance. That Christ died at the center of the gospel message. There is death and death takes possession of the promised land and of its people and gives life. Christ's death is this beautiful image of when he went into the grave, he took possession of the earth. And when he rose up from the grave, God put every authority and every rule and every king, including Satan and death under his feet. It is his last enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, it continues on saying that the last enemy of Christ is death. Everything is under Christ's feet and one day death will be under his feet. But we hold on for certain that though we die, yet we will live for those who believe in Christ. Because Christ is the firstborn of the resurrection. Israel was buried in the promised land and one day the, Egyptian, the, the Israelites will be carried out with the possessions of Egypt and now take possession of that very land yet Christ has taken possession of this earth and his people but in thinking of death we must think about life we are to live as people who are free Psalm 90 verse 12 again so teach us to number our day, days, 
that we may get a heart of wisdom. We can ponder death, but when we die, our time is done. So when we think about death, and we think about the end of Jacob's life, 147 years, we must think about how we live. Jacob played his part in the story of God, but it's our turn to play our part in the story of God, however long we might have left. Are you going to waste your talent? Are you going to bury your talent? If we think of the parable of Christ who gave ten to one man, five to another, and one to the third man, and the guy who had one just buried it and brought it back to Jesus, to the master, and was condemned for it. Are we going to bury the days that God has given us? Number your days, for in it you gain wisdom, as Psalm says. As Psalm 90 says. Psalm 90 helps us on this and gives us a bit of a clue as how many days we might have when it says, the years of your life are 70 or by reason of strength 80. So I did a calculation. I've got 17,520 days plus a few more for leap years and I'm not quite 32. So that's if I live to 80. That's if, that's if God's generous. If I have strength for 80 Number our days. 17,000 days doesn't sound that long. Maybe I did the calculation wrong. No, I'm right? Oh, good. You can do yours as well. Number our days. The people are freaking out. Will we number our day, days and gain a heart of wisdom? More and more people in our life as we get older are going to die. We're going to grieve for them. We're going to lament. But will it spur us on to live for the kingdom of God? What role are we playing in God's story? Do we see ourselves accurately in the story of God? Do we think we're the hero? Are we the David? That place has already been achieved, accomplished. It's Jesus. How will you invest your days? For the fruitfulness of God's story or the fruitfulness of your own? How can Newcastle and the Hunter be changed by the people of God for the kingdom of God? You know, we're, we're trying to start a school so that we can disciple the kids in our church and raise them in the fear of the Lord and the teaching of the Lord so that we don't lose a generation to secularism and humanism. We can hold on to the generations. What businesses can we start? What churches can we plant? What churches can we save from liberalism and false teaching? What churches can we revitalize? How will we use our days? Will we bury them? Or will we multiply them? Would our 17,000 days be as if we lived for two lifetimes? Because we've left it to the third and the fourth and the thousandth generation as the promise of Abraham to Abraham goes. In Christ we have life. And in this life, we live for his story. His kingdom is growing, his kingdom is expanding, and he calls us to be a part of it. The great commission will be fulfilled. All will observe what he has commanded. Will we invest our days well? Or will we bury them?